Father Kevin O'Brien, SJ, is a Jesuit priest and educator. He has taught and served in the administration of several Jesuit universities, including Georgetown, Santa Clara, and St. Joseph's, and he's passionate about connecting his writing and teaching to the cause of environmental and social justice. He is among the most widely read authors in the field of Ignatian spirituality today. His best-selling books include The Ignatian Adventure and Seeing with the Heart. In these works, he translates the 500-year-old tradition of Jesuit spirituality to a wide audience today. Without further introduction, I give you Father Kevin O'Brien. So I guess, Father, just to sort of frame the conversation a bit, I'm working my way with a spiritual advisor through the Ignatian Adventure, your book, uh, and it's sometimes referred to as the 19th Annotation. My understanding of it is that your book is sort of a step-by-step guide, I think for the layperson, and you can, you can correct that if you want, um, I think for the layperson through the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius of Loyola, who is the founder of the Jesuits, some of the listeners will, will be familiar with him. Um, And some won't. So maybe at some point, some general introduction to him would be great. Um, But I guess my first question would be, I guess for my own knowledge, all the Jesuits go through the spiritual exercises in their training. And there's, of course, different iterations of the spiritual exercises. At what point did you feel either going through the spiritual exercises or ministering them? that you felt called to sort of write another version of it. Right. Yeah. Cause yeah. I was sort of fascinated. It's such an undertaking when you read how many different links there are and allusions mm-hmm. to Bible passages and how much thought would have gone into this. And of course right. you probably benefited from other versions in the past, but I'm curious what, what would have inspired you to write your own version of this? Yeah. Well, thanks Kevin. It's good to be here. I guess I would Say that um, so the spiritual exercises are literally a set of exercises for the soul that St. Hmm. Ignatius of Loyola, this 16th century Spaniard, um, developed in the course of his own conversion experience. So Ignatius was a nobleman, he was uh, living the life at court, you know, um, battles and romance and, and uh, surrounded by wealth and privilege. And he was injured in battle. He had literally a cannonball went through his legs. And, and that 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 caused him to um, convalesce for many months at home. And it was during that time of convalescence, he was about 30 years old. He started to think about his life and said, well, now, wait a second. Is this, is this where I really want sort of the life of court, riches, honor, titles, glory? His heart, his heart he described, was being pulled in another direction. Hmm. And what he was wise enough not to not to jump and say, oh, I'm not going to go do something different. He actually reflected and thought about it and took time away to really reflect on what was happening deep in his heart. And so the spirituality of of St. Ignatius, he would later become a saint, who was the founder of the Jesuits, and I'm a Jesuit, is very much based on um, the desires of the heart, those deep desires of the heart. And he noticed that God was working and laboring within those deep desires of his heart. And he also noticed those things that were distracting him from that, those things that would get him off track. And so uh, he ended up taking a, um, many months, uh, you know, reflecting on his life and, and developing these own exercises for himself that he would jot down and write down. And he found them so helpful that he started to offer these spiritual exercises for other people. And they were helpful to them. Hmm. 
And so over the years, he put it together in a book. And this book, uh, which would be called The Spiritual Exercises of St. Ignatius, um, are a collection of exercises which help people really do two things. Above all, grow closer to God. Because Ignatius had this experience of God working with him very personally and intimately. Again, in the deep desire of, desires of his heart and, you know, in the world outside of himself. And secondly, he found that these exercises were very helpful in helping him make decisions about his life, to be free of all the stuff that holds us back, so that as we can make better decisions about our life, so that we can live with greater faith and greater hope and greater love. And so he collected these exercises together in a manual, a, a prayer that would be called the spiritual exercises. And he was very wise because it, 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 to, to make them adaptable. And throughout the spiritual exercises, ad, adaptability and flexibility is critical. Throughout the exercises, as much as Ignatius sort of writes down specific guidelines, he always says, oh, but you got to be flexible. Why? Because God works with each of us so personally, so uniquely, that we have to realize that there's not a cookie cutter approach to spirituality. And so he... Um, that's probably the, the reason why these exercises have lasted for 500 years and been yeah. translated in so many different ways and forms. And he said, he said in the beginning and the opening of these exercises, he says, listen, if you can't, the classic form is 30 days of silence. So I did that twice in my Jesuit life, 30 days of silence running through the exercises with a spiritual director. Now, a lot of people don't have time or money for that. Sure. But Ignatius also said, well, there's another way to do it. And it's in the course of your daily life over 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 several months. In the hmm. course of your daily life, you'll you'll set aside time, maybe forty five minutes or an hour to pray every day in the course of your daily life, and you can make the exercises. And that's what you referred to earlier as the nineteenth annotation, a very unglamorous title, which basically refers to the nineteenth um, uh, footnote endnote, hmm. in which you say, "Okay, be flexible," and so. Oh, that's interesting. Of course, of my own Jesuit life, I I I found that most people could not make the thirty day retreat, so they were making what was this nineteenth annotation retreat. And so I, as I gave the exercises to people, and as I made them myself, I learned to adapt to our modern context in the twenty first mm -hmm. century. And so I I ended up writing my own book, which is which is a modern adaptation of the spiritual exercises. Um, and calling it the Ignatian Adventure. Ignatian referring to, say, Ignatius of Loyola. And adventure, simply because every every journey of faith is an adventure, hmm. um, with some shared experiences and some individual experiences. That was an awesome answer. And my next question might force you to speculate, and it's okay if you, if you don't have a... Um, an actual citation to quote or something here, but one of the things that seems so relatable, there's something very relatable about Jesuit or Ignatian spirituality. And yet the origin of it seems anything but relatable, a cannonball through the leg. Uh, I forget how long in a cave outside of a town. <laughs> what do you think it was? Was he writing at all about how he even started to consider that his journey or his approach would be replicable at scale or sort of, you know, applicable to the layperson. 
Yeah, no, well, no. First of all, he he made these exercises. He he wrote them as a lay person, so he was not ordained. Sure. So that's important because he was writing to sort it out. He was writing in the 1500s, but you know, just as a lay person, um, and he never, um, I think, he never wrote them down in order to develop this retreat that would last 500 years. Sure. Right. He just he ended up having this personal experience, and, and like many of us, journal. He just journaled, mm. and and sort of wrote down what was happening, and then. In all of his writings, one of the we have about eight thousand letters uh, that he wrote, which is a lot. If you're an historian, that is a lot of letters. And he, yeah. we have about eight thousand letters of his. And the phrase that that most often appears in his letters is is um, uh, to help souls, hmm. to help people. That sounds very basic, but it's sort of like he, he said, anything I do, anything. Eventually, when he he founded the Jesuits, a religious order of like-minded men, he said, "Our our job is to is to help souls, to help people." And what he found is, when he as he took these notes from his own life, he and he and he offered these exercises to other people. He realized that they were helpful to them. So he said, "Well, like you said, I guess you use the word scale." He started to scale up, going, "Well, hmm, if it's helpful to me, it's helpful to other people. Maybe if I wrote them down." And if they could be printed, now we're about you know 100 years from the invention of the printing press. That was very helpful here, as as it was printed from his original Spanish into Latin, um, it was able to be spread and shared. So, um, I think you know it happened. I think for him it was it was uh, the unfolding very gradually. And you referred like where was he doing most of this writing? He started to write down these exercises. He was, you know, spent a lot of time in this town called Manresa, which was a town not far from his his family home or castle. But he he went down to that town of Manresa, and uh, he, you know, spent about a year there. He had he had a spiritual director, again, someone to talk to about his spiritual life. He worked with the poor, and he spent a lot of time alone, including in this cave, which you can still visit today. So while he didn't spent a year in a cave. He spent a lot of time there. And that's where he found that the solitude was helpful for him to discern the different movements of his, of his heart. Interesting. So about, you know, 10 years later, he would end up sort of publishing this thing and, and it's began translated into, to over 500 years translated into multiple languages. And, um, and my book is just one adaptation of them, um, mm -hmm. trying to Take the original exercises, which I'm faithful to, but I'll, but trying to apply them in our in in our setting, which he would welcome because you know again key to the exercises is adaptation. It's the first time I've ever heard reference to it. But who was his his director? Of course, I don't know if that would that would have been the language that was used. It might have been, yeah. and that might be where we get it from. But who, who was his spiritual mentor there? Yeah, he had, I, you know, I don't, I don't, I forget the, his exact name, but yeah, his, he, he, they wouldn't use the word director, but his spiritual guide, his, his confessor, um, uh, yeah, he met with someone regularly, which is very helpful. I think just in the spiritual life, it's helpful to, to talk to someone about your, your spiritual life, because what, you know, for any of us who, who have these experiences that are deeply personal, spiritual, emotional, sometimes it's hard to make sense of them and articulating them either in journal form and writing or talking to another person can be very, very helpful. So uh, and I think he found that. So he suggested that, that we find a spiritual guide. Now, 
today there are ways to find spiritual guides who are trained to do that, but many of us don't don't can't do that or don't have the time. So what I suggest in the book is at least find you know a friend or companion, someone you trust, a wise guide um, to help you, just to have someone to listen to you and to talk about what's happening. Because only when we try to put words on it does it can it, does it start to make sense. Because mm-hmm. again, we're talking about the the deep movements of our hearts um, and the deep deep movements away from you know greater faith, hope, and love. And so trying to articulate those. It's hard because it's so personal. So even fumbling for words and trying to articulate it is help, helps us own, understand those ideas. Hmm. In your own experience, just to give me a sense for this next question, what would be the percentage of people that you administer the exercises to or have administered the exercises to lay person to Jesuit or Jesuit in training? So... Um, I think for the 19th annotation retreat, this this retreat over the, in your daily life, which as I've laid it out, is about eight months. So it's sort of uh, you're praying every day over the course of eight months, um, mostly lay people, um, Jesuits. Again, we because you know because of the commitments we've made, we we can make you know every Jesuit makes a week long silent retreat every year, sort of as a mini version of the exercises. And again, twice in our lives, we, we make a 30 day retreat. Um, but the 19th annotation retreat is particularly suited for lay people, again, who have families who are working, who, who don't have the, the time to, to set aside to spend 30 days away. So, and again, even a lot of, a lot of people have weekend experiences or retreats over five days. Those are little mini versions of the exercises, which are, which are great and very, very helpful. Hmm. What is the rhythm to that? I know the first 30-day retreat happens at the very beginning of a, of a Jesuit's journey. Where does that that second thirtieth day thirty day um, after they're ordained before mm-hmm. the Jesuit professes um, uh, final vows? So we we profess vows early in our Jesuit life after two years of training, and then later we 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 profess final vows, sort of a a uh, a recommitment, a deepening commitment as a Jesuit after we're ordained for a few years. So you're doing both. 30-day retreats and how many years total is that? I mean, it all depends on the person. For me, there was about um 15 years separating oh. those retreats. Oh wow. Jesuit yeah. training is very long. I mean, it's sure. it, it's 10 to 12 years before we are ordained for Jesuits who who get ordained. Mm-hmm. Um and then five years later I I I did the retreat again. So, uh, and it was very different because I was in a different stage of my life. And that's the joy of the the exercises or any spiritual life is, you know, you're you're praying in the midst of your life. God is found in what is real. And so, um, you you know, it's not like everything we pray about is connected to our life, our real life, because God is connected to our real life. Hmm. Right. So that's why I recently was like when I was praying. I found myself just bored over over the stretch of a period of time. And my I have a spiritual director, and he goes, "Why do you think you're bored?" And I was going, "I'm not sure. Maybe it's." He goes, "Well, are you praying about your real life?" And I go, "No, I hadn't been. I really wasn't praying enough about like what was happening in my life. Mm-hmm. I was separating it. And um, certainly, you could pray over scripture, and there's different ways of praying which are very very helpful. But there were things in my life I needed to tend to that I just was not bringing to my prayer, and. Th- 
that's the joy of of the this retreat in everyday life with the exercises is that it, you're you're it's stereo like you're, you've got the exercises in one ear and your real life in the other ear and you're like trying to bring them um into conversation with each other right into mm-hmm. balance with each other and it's uh it's wonderful because you know the ignatian spirituality is very very practical and the whole idea is to help us again make concrete decisions in our life and to grow in faith hope and love and again for who i am so um and who you are and that's you we're two different people so you know the retreat there are many commonalities but how god moves us will be might be very different because we're different people Hmm. i love the image of the, the stereo sound that was cool yeah and and your book is full of really neat ways of thinking about not only the the exercises writ large but different parts of them um i, I want to get to a few at some point i'm i asked you earlier to sort of split lay people and uh jesuits in training and and you said that the majority of people that that are working through this book or working through this book with you are lay people i joke with my director steve serific all the time I was a person who sort of grew up culturally Catholic enough to maybe want to go to a Bible study, but culturally Catholic enough to not understand what was going on there. And I think, you know, the way people spoke there was very strange and people talking about where they saw Jesus in their life seemed very strange to me. Um, And yet there's something about the spiritual exercises that seem very inviting to people like that. Call them whatever you want. Maybe I I could have called myself at the time a lukewarm Catholic or something like that. Um, and yet the book is full of all of that language. You know, picturing yourself with Jesus, picturing these incredibly capital R religious things. Mm-hmm. What do you think it is about the spiritual exercise that seem sort of traditional in one regard, but also inviting to people outside of maybe um, outside of maybe a tradition of thinking like that or speaking like that. I, I well, find myself working through this book, just amazed that I am suddenly in a place where I'm, I'm okay thinking through those things. Mm-hmm. They don't, they don't feel as jarring as maybe if you caught me a few years earlier and, and forced me to think about some of those things. Right. I mean, what if, uh, you know, Ignatius insisted that um, uh, as he wrote, we must go in their door so they can come out ours. Basically what mm-hmm. we would say, you meet people where they're at. And so if someone's not uh, someone who's not grown up religious who might just be a culturally religious person, it's like throwing all this religious language at them is not going to be helpful. Sure. And the, my goal whenever I, I meet with people either for spiritual counseling or, or leading them through an extended retreat is, is I'm, I'm not trying to make them anything. Um, I, I want I want my only goal is to help them grow closer to God, to understand who God is for them. And how how God is calling them. I'm I'm I've got no agenda. My only agenda is to be uh, Ignatius actually advised in one of these introductory notes, note number fifteen. Um, basically, said the director has to be very careful not to get in the way. Hmm. Just don't get in the way. You can point and 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 you can point this way or that way. You can nudge, but don't get in the way of how God is working with each person. So that's the premise, is God works with each of us. How we name that God, where we are with God, that's I, I consider that sacred. And I just want to reverence that with those I, I meet with. So 
I think that's the that's the fundamental starting point with anyone that I speak to about matters of of religion. But I think I, I can say that these exercises, I have offered them to people who are not Catholic, certainly. Christian, any Christian could, this is not an explicitly Catholic retreat. It's definitely, there's there's lots of way. We'll talk a little bit about the content, but it certainly is Christian based. But the, the exercises are adaptable for non-Christians in my view. I feel very strongly about that. Hmm. So I've offered the exercises to, to those who are Jewish, Hindu, um, uh, those who are from, uh, with Asian religious background, hmm. um, those who uh Muslim, and it may not be the full exercises. It could be part of them. It could be ad- adapting them in, in their full course in different ways. But I, I because I think the exercises um, uh, are ways for again, the, the, to help, help people make concrete decisions in their life to help them meet God as they experience their God, right? Hmm. And whether they grow closer to God as a Christian or as a good Muslim or Jew, hmm. that, that to me is success, right? And it's not my doing; it's God's. And I think the the book is just to be helpful. I, you know, I, I just um, I just finished, and will soon soon will be published, um, or is just just published my second book called "Seeing with the Heart: A Guide right. to A Guide to Navigating Life's Adventures." Congratulations! That book, awesome. yeah, that book is in a sense a um, a precursor to the Ignatian adventure. It, it was it had in mind. Uh, 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 people from all different religious backgrounds or or those who are just seeking with no religious background. And so I wrote that book based on the last 10 years of experience, giving the exercises and teaching where I said, well, how can I talk about the, the Ignatian tradition of spirituality in a way that's really open to people from all different backgrounds uh, for whom this idea of making a retreat is, 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 is itself foreign or hmm. scary. So I hope this book will be helpful and may whet people's appetite to say, okay, yeah, I've read Seeing with the Heart. I'm really intrigued. Maybe I'll try this spiritual exercises thing. Interesting. What was it like administering that to people of different faith? Was it really interesting hearing how they worked through the exercises and maybe their, how they pictured certain things? There's parts of this that are explicitly Catholic, that, you know, many parts picturing sort of, especially some of the imaginative yeah. um, exercises where you're sort of picturing the Trinity outside of the universe mm-hmm. or outside of earth. What would someone of a different faith, uh, I'm curious what their experience of that might've looked like. Yeah. So it varies. Right. But so let me explain a little bit about the content of these exercises. So sure. there are essentially exercises which are biblically based. So in the, in the Jewish and scripture in Christian scriptures, and um, and then there are exercises that Ignatius devised on his own. So you referred to one of imagine the Trinity. Like, how do you imagine the Trinity? I mean, sure. I, I mean, art, artists have tried that. And, I, you know, it's like that's a bit of a mystery, but it's sort of fun to try to do. Um, yeah. You know, Rublev's beautiful icon of the Trinity. I mean, mm. uh, Google that and you can get a sense of, wow, that's an interesting idea of the Trinity. So artists have been struggling with the Trinity. Ignatius said, imagine the Trinity gazing on the world. And the world is beautiful and broken. There's people born, being born and died. They're laughing and they're dying. They're cry, laughing and crying. They're doing this and that. And then, you know, God decides to, to save people from the harm they're causing themselves and others. And so 
the 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 exercises shift to the the life of Jesus, right? The bulk of the exercises are meditations, contemplations on the life of Jesus from the Gospels, from from his birth to his death and then his resurrection. So that's the bulk of them. And, and Ignatian contemplation, and Ignatius didn't invent this type of prayer, but he popularized it a lot. Hmm. The Franciscans liked it. The manger scene at Christmas, that was the Franciscans' hmm. attempt to help people imagine the birth of Jesus. And some of the typical manger scene is biblical. Some of it is not, yeah. right? So, um, but use your imagination. I mean, that the manger scene is an imaginative exercise. Ignatius had his own imaginative exercises. So in his, he would say, put yourself in the scene of the gospel. Let's say Jesus calling his first disciples. You know, imagine the you're on the shore. What is it? What's the weather like? What is it? What is the sand sand in your feet feel like? What what is uh, the the taste of salt on your lips? Um, what what do you see? What are the disciples doing? What do you hear? What do they say? And, and you're to use your imagination to sort of uh, like you're almost directing a movie and then almost acting in it. Put yourself in the scene. You're one of the disciples or you're in the boat when Jesus is calling his disciples. You just sort of let that play out. And so it's sort of a fun. I mean, it's a really fun way to pray. It might be you. Um, and so. I think for a Christian that can take on certain meaning, but for if you're. A Jew that takes on particular meaning because Jesus was a Jew. If you're not a Christian, if you're a Muslim or Hindu, for instance, what do you do with that? I don't know. You let the person sort of figure that out. Mm. One thing I don't do is I don't take Christ out of the exercises, right? Mm. I don't I don't water them down and say, oh, no, I just introduce them. To, and my goal is not to convert them. It's just to say, okay, here's the gospel. Mm. Here's the scene. Imagine it. And let, I just trust them to imagine it. And for a good Muslim, they and 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 in in the Islamic tradition, Jesus is a revered prophet. So this is not foreign to them, but you know, just a different understanding of who Jesus was. The resurrection, I mean, that's definitely a Christian move. What does a Jew or a Muslim do with that? I don't. I just let them do with it what they want. You know, um, they could just respectfully understand it. They could try to apply it, translate it to their own religion. I, um, is Jesus son of God or a man of virtue or both? Uh, mm. So I guess I don't worry. I don't worry um, about drawing lines there. I, I just I just present the exercises as Ignatius offered them without watering them down and trust the person and God who's working with that person to make with them what's helpful. Again, with, with, um, the goal here is not to make new Christians, it's to help people draw closer to God no matter how they name that God. That's awesome. Was there a story? I'm thinking about seeing with the heart. Was there a moment in introducing the, because you kind of said it was a precursor to the Ignatian adventure. Was there a moment while you were sort of introducing the Ignatian adventure over the past, maybe 10 years, I think you said, was there a moment that you thought, oh, wow, there's another book here. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's it, so I wrote the I wrote the Ignatian Adventure simply because I was giving so many retreats hmm. and I had all these notes and, yeah. and I, I put them together and then someone said, oh, this would make a great book. And I go, um, <laughs> would anyone read it? And so, yeah. but apparently they have. It's done very well over, it's, it continues to be in multiple printings over 10 years. It's been very helpful to people. I mean, translated into three languages, which is great. That's so- awesome. But what I realized in giving the exercises and more so in teaching undergraduates, I realized 
none of them would would open this book. Mm. I stay. I mean, many of them would not open this book. It's it seems intimidating. It's long. It's long in the sense of making this retreat. It's it's again for an eighteen or nineteen or twenty year old. It, it could seem a little overwhelming. So I said, I got to write something different for them. Mm. And so really the book is, is, is intended for an audience that's very broad. So um, uh, that it's a book that would be for people who don't know where they are necessarily religiously or who know where they are religiously, but want to learn more about their faith. So it's really, it's an introduction to Ignatian spirituality. In a sense, it's an introduction to Christianity for some. Um, and sharing my own experiences in my life, the life of other people, revered wisdom figures from different religious tradition. It relies on the arts, film, music. Hmm. Yeah, as ways of saying, okay, this is this is what Ignatius was getting at 500 years ago. So Seeing with the Heart comes from uh, The Little Prince, which is just a wonderful book. Sure. Hopefully everyone who's listening has read it. Reread it if you haven't as an adult. And it's that there's that scene in the little prince where the fox is talking to the little prince, and the little fox says, um, "It is only with the heart that one sees rightly what is essential is invisible to the eyes." Hmm. And so that's really captures to me a lot about Ignatian spirituality, which is a spirituality of the heart that God works with us through our deep desires, our passions, from the deepest sense of who we are. And that we need to learn to see not just you know with our our five senses, but also with our heart, because I think that's where there's we get in touch with transcendence beyond the material and physical. That's fascinating. I had a follow up question, but then I you lost me with the with the little prince. I started remembering that story. It's a great little story. Yeah. Um, I'm going to come back. I, I, I'm sure that that question will come back to me, but I wanted to ask a question and I'm sure there's a little bit of, of this in both. Um, oh, I remember my question. Thank goodness. It sounded like this book accidentally happened. You sort of were compiling notes and then you looked at it and it was a, it was a book's worth of notes, which is impressive and, and awesome. Where this book seems like it was a little bit more intentional. You went yeah. into it with, intention of writing a book and it sounds like even the things that you reference films and were you a little bit more comfortable as a as a person who writes books now right. writing the yeah. second one yeah. and sort of like dipping into different parts of your life where this one um there are all sorts of cool little stories and anecdotes but it, it definitely seemed a little bit more streamlined than the thing that you were just describing yeah no i definitely became more comfortable as a writer and this book was more intentional because it, it came from a class i taught hmm. Um, and so I think there was much, I just intended to um, write it. It just took a long, it just took a long time to write. I finally had a sabbatical, which allowed me to do it full time for mm. um, nine months. So that's how I was able to finally get it out. But because this, this type of book required a lot more um, time and, and research and because um, the, the number of sources that I relied on. Uh, so it, it took, so yeah, in one sense I get it, yeah, much more intentional um, mm. and, but helpful because it really brought, I mean, I, I taught the, I taught the course for eight or nine years. And I think that it was a student, you know, I, at the opening, I thank the students who helped write the book because mm. they really helped me, their questions and their, their contributions in class over those years really helped me 
give life to that book, which I hope will be helpful to people. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. I'm curious, something that kept coming up for me while I was reading my way through this, and I'm sure, as I said, there there's, has to be some of this in seeing with the heart, if it is an introduction to this, is this relationship between discernment or sort of trying to figure out the different movements of your life and where God might be calling you and solitude. Um, of mm. course, the practice itself is sort of based off of him, St. Ignatius, sort of going off by himself and thinking through some of these things. Uh, and then, of course, you set aside 25, 40 minutes, however long you can every day by yourself to mm. think about these things. And of course, in between those moments every day, you're going out and you're living in the world and you're making mistakes and you're thinking thoughts and you're, you know, cursing people and you're getting upset and then you're coming back the next day and trying to think through it. What is this really? And then as I sort of like tiptoe into Jesus's life here, I think around week 15, um, he's going off by himself and, you know, the disciples are like, oh, where are you going? And he, it seems to be this pattern. Uh, I don't know what the relationship is, but I want to ask you, what is the relationship between solitude and a mm. spiritual life or a life of discernment? That's a great question. So I think, first of all, what's solitude? So solitude is different than silence. Um, and it's different than separation. So solitude for me is um, an experience of being in touch with the deepest sense of who you are, of that, again, the, those that, that matters of the heart. That when we sort of, there's a turning inward that takes place when one is in solitude. Silence is an environment which can help us, you know, cultivate solitude, but not necessarily. So I've had experiences where I've been in silence, but I have been not in solitude because I've got, I've been so distracted. My mind is racing. I'm going back and forth. I'm preoccupied. I'm anxious, blah, blah, blah. That's really not solitude, right? Um, there's, it's full of distraction. And that happens in any spiritual life. But often silence is helpful because you, you're you're freed of all the noise, the clutter, the internet, right? You're not you're not texting, you're not surfing the internet, you're not listening to what other people are saying, and you you that solitude is is very that sorry that silence is very helpful to to cultivate an inner solitude. Um, so. In any retreat, there has to be moments of silence. And in the Ignatian tradition, that's very, very helpful. So in the course of a 30-day silent retreat, you literally are not, you're silent for 30 sure. days, which is a very challenging experience. There's two break days in the retreat where you might talk, but otherwise you're silent. And that that's like scuba diving deeply mm. and uh, swimming in the depths of your soul or the ocean. But as much as you experience solitude in the depths, of your soul, you, your senses sort of seeing with the heart, your senses become fine-tuned to notice stuff. You can hear and when you're walking around in that silence, you have this inner solitude, which allows you to notice things you would otherwise miss. Hmm. Uh, so your senses become fine-tuned in a way. So silence helps. But in the course of this retreat, you know, or, or frankly, without doing a retreat, just praying every day, it helps to meditate for some. It helps to pray for some just to take 15 minutes every day of just quiet, of silence. Now, again, some people do that in meditation with breathing exercises or they try to free their mind. Other people can, you know, sit quietly and read scripture or um, there's so many different ways of praying. We could talk about another time, but 
Um, taking that time away and the every day is really, really helpful because it just, that silence helps free us from distractions where we can start to cultivate a habit of solitude. So in the book, I describe an experience of finding God on, on the on the, the D train from the Bronx to Men, uh, from the from Manhattan to the Bronx. It was a subway when I lived in New York, and I and I I was I was surrounded by people in a packed subway car. Surrounded. I was I wasn't talking to anyone, but I was surrounded by people with all the noise of a subway car. I had this deep, profound experience of finding God in the midst of that. I explain it in my in the book, Seeing with the Heart, and. So I, even though I was surrounded by people and noise, I had this inner solitude at that moment that was um, pretty powerful. Again, that, that's pretty rare. It's rare for me. That happens, you know, less often than it does. I would like, I should say. Um, usually for me, I, that, that silence, you know, I try to take a half hour of silence in the morning and just stillness and quiet to pray which I just think is really helpful to cultivating a spirit of solitude. Mm. But Ignatius said, you know, he described the early Jesuits as being contemplatives in action. They were not monks up in the hills who lived in silence. They were living in cities for the most part. And the early Jesuits said, people would ask, are you monks? And they go, well, no, we're not monks. We're contemplatives in action. We, mm. we have these moments of, of quiet during the day. But yet we live and work in the midst of the world, and we try to bring that spirit of quiet of prayer to our work, and we try to bring our work to our prayer. So there's this beautiful chemistry between the two. That's the goal. It's hard sometimes. It doesn't work all the time because that's a hard thing to do, right? To pray as you work, to work as you pray. Um, but with practice, and that's that's really what it is. With exercise, with spiritual exercises, it does get easier. I'm. I'm you really piqued my interest with that little episode on the train. And, and I'm really curious to to read through that in your, in your new book. And, and this might be really difficult for you to explain. Uh, and, and it might be that your answer is just, I have to go read the book, which I'm fine with. Is, was there anything about that experience on the train that you had other intimations of in your prayer life or in that solitude and in that silence, not in the train? Was there any? Not, not. I'm not sure even actually. No, how I, I just say only that. Like, you see, God, or what we call grace, is everywhere. And sure. we, the, the thing is, it's not that God is playing hide and seek. God is everywhere in all right. things. Ignatius would say, and our goal is to fine tune our spiritual senses to notice. Sure. So you know, if you and your listeners uh, are would would look around the room they're in. There are trillions of atoms colliding against one another. We just and and that that creates light and sound. Hmm. Um, but we don't see it, but it's there. Yeah, if we had we, I guess we could bring in an instrument. So if we could wave the instrument, you could suddenly see them and go, oh my gosh, look at that. You know, God grace is everywhere. Um, the Jesuit poet Gerard Manley Hopkins wrote in one of his poems, the world is charged with the grandeur of God, charged. Mm. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. So it's everywhere. And, and really what spiritual exercise does is it fine tunes the senses, the spiritual senses to notice grace everywhere. Um, so there's a daily practice. I have it in both the Ignatian Adventure and in Sing with the Heart, which is familiar to, to many people. Sort of the first prayer that people 
learning about the Ignatian or Jesuit tradition of spirituality learn about is the it's the prayer called the examine, which is a, a, a grateful review of the day. And the idea is to get in the habit of reviewing the day and saying, oh, wait, that moment was special. Why was that special? Hmm. I felt something. There was something that was happening inside of me when I talked to that person or when I I, I rode the subway or when I was teaching in class or when I was in the grocery store. There was something about that moment. I felt either very um, at peace or joyful or um, or it could feel agitated. Like, so these feelings can go different ways. Like I was agitated or I was anxious. So what was that about, right? Where were the spirit, Ignatius would say, where were the spirits moving? Were they leading to greater faith, hope, and love to God or, or the, the opposite way? And there were definitely opposite spirits uh, that said, oh, those would get us off track. And if, if we get in the habit of reviewing every day, our interior life, the different movements of our soul, Ignatius called them, these different movements, then we just keep getting the habit where as we're going through the day, we get better at noticing them when they're right in front of us. Instead of in hindsight, go, oh yeah, gosh, that was a, I really felt God present. When I say God present, I mean, use what word you want. I mean, any encounter with truth, beauty, or goodness is an encounter with the, the divine. Sometimes the, the language, I talk about this in the in seeing with the heart, sometimes the language God gets in the way because we have piled all this stuff on, on the word God that sometimes is not helpful to people. Hmm. It can be alienating to people depending on what that word means or has been told it means. It really, any, I mean, in, in the New Testament, we're told explicitly God is love, right? Now, God is still a person. is isn't just some sort of amorphous concept, but God is a person. But this person, this, this God, is within whom, with whom we are in relationship, has a name and there's different names of God in the, in the scriptures. Um, and this God is most best thought of as love. So any approach to love, any approach to truth or beauty, in my view, or goodness is an encounter with the divine. And we just get better at noticing it, hmm. you know? So as, so what, what, I don't know what happened on that subway. It was, it was a gift, right? I mean, it wasn't like, I, I wasn't a flash from heaven or a lightning bolt, but I just realized, oh, something is, I just started to notice. And and I think it's because I, I had, I had you know, been praying, like I had been fine tuning my spiritual senses in my own prayer, my own qu quiet prayer, that when I was put in a situation that was happening every day, I rode the subway, I finally noticed. Hmm. Alice Walker, Alice Walker has this, um, in the color purple, has this beautiful, I, I refer to this in the book, uh, this beautiful the, the, where the where the name where the title of the book comes, uh, she writes two two of the central female characters are walking through a field in spring, and the older says to the younger, "I think it pisses God off to walk by the color purple in, in a field and not notice." Right? I think it huh. pisses God off to walk by the color purple in a field and not notice, which I think is God. It's God is angry. He's like, "Oh, haven't you noticed? I've been sending you the color purple for years." I just want you to notice it because I think God wants us to enjoy what God has given us. I didn't know that's where that, that title came from. That's a cool story. And, and definitely aligns with that, with the exercises in a really interesting way. What do you say to somebody who's a little intimidated here? You have a priest of however many years who has been fine tuning his senses and then has this experience, this sort of, um, a high point on the subway of sort of noticing uh, 
the grace of God, so to say. Um, what do you say to someone who's like, oh man, like you have to work that hard to <laughs> that's yeah. I see I feel such a long way off from that. No, no. I think I think I think it's le- it's less about working hard and more about being open. I think mm. sometimes we work too hard. We, we we turn spirituality into athleticism or or huh. you know, uh, there's this ancient heresy in the church. Pope Francis talks about this called Pelagianism. And he warns against spiritual Pelagianism, which is basically like, oh, if I work hard enough, I will earn love. I will earn God's attention. I will earn holiness. And, and that's steeped in our culture, which is all fixed on workaholism and perfectionism and beating other people in competition and being number one. And I think actually the spiritual life teaches you to let go more than do more. Interesting. So I think that's where I would say, I, I think I was probably getting in the way hmm. by working too hard. Now, again, there's a discipline required. I think there's a, a like, like uh, maintaining your health. You need athletic discipline. You need to, you need to exercise every day, hmm. right? So that's a good thing. You don't want to not do that, but that physical exercise allows you, allows you to live, like live and breathe and move better same with prayer just don't turn it into a, like a cause and effect thing just it's a relationship it's like imagine if you you know if you have a partner and you go home after work and you say oh now now is now's my here's my 30 minutes with my partner and this will allow me then to get this if you turn your relationships into productivity or like outcomes focused those relationships will atrophy hmm. it's really just about being with the person that matters and it's just being with God in prayer. And again, there's different ways of praying. The Ignatian way is just one way of just being with being with God that way. You learn to be in relationship where that, again, going back to sort of that sense of solitude that you, you, you just become, you know, God works on your soul where you just become more open or receptive to all that God gives you. So again, it's, this is not lightning bolts from heaven. This is, I was on a subway. Right. And then I got off the subway and I went on with my life. I didn't sure. like, I mean, I, I knew it was special. I just didn't like, I, I it wasn't like, I, it was ordinary, hmm. but that's the whole point. That's awesome. I might be reading into this too much. Is is there part of the second book's title that um, is in response to the first? You sort of said, you know, it's not a workout and yet it's called yeah. the Ignatian. Yeah, that's actually a good point. Right. The, I think. The word exercise, the spiritual exercises would make you yeah. think it's a workout. Is there a part of you in naming that the book, seeing with the heart that's sort of trying to to react to that in a way that maybe is a little bit more clarifying to people like, hey, it's not all a workout. It's not yeah. all that effort. Maybe, maybe. I think it's a good point. I, I think, um, yeah, just maybe trying to be, you know, accessible. I mean, I that so it's seeing with the heart, uh, a guide to navigating life's adventures. Mm-hmm. And the image I have there in the opening of the book is... Um, um, of a river and uh, sort of going down the river in a boat and um, with your hand on the rudder. And the idea is that you got to let the river take you, but w- with your hand gently on the rudder, because otherwise you'll crash into the shore, right? Sure. Or the rock. So you need a rudder. So you got to have direction. You got to have some focus. You got to, there has to be some discipline, but you, but only to to cooperate with the the, the flow of the river. 
Hmm. So that's really what the spiritual life is when, or, you know, in relationships with people that you love in your life, like, you know, when you're working too hard, but every relationship needs work, you need to set aside time and you need to do stuff for each other. And you need to like, so there's discipline in relationships, but if a relationship is all about work, I mean, yeah. there's something off in that relationship. Um, so you're really trying to do both. You 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 gently keep your hand on the rudder, but you go with the flow of the river. Maybe it's a last question. Unless it's unless, unless it's not a good question, then you can let me get another one. Was there something? I'm curious as as you work your way through the 19th annotation or the Ignatian adventure. There's a lot of sort of imagining yourself being there for certain things, profound events. And I'm sure as a Jesuit, you're also prone to sort of thinking about yourself there through profound events in Ignatius's life, maybe in the cave or the cannonball scene or um, proposing the order itself. I'm sure that would be profound to look back on being a Jesuit 500 years later. And as I read through, as I'm reading through now, the Ignatian adventure, there's, there seem to be these very Ignatian analogies, the discernment of the spirits, for example, and the water falling on rock versus mm. falling on a sponge. I'm really curious in your experience of writing these books uh, and, and that example of the river, is there something, has there been anything about writing those books and coming up with your own analogies? And thinking about what are the analogies that are going to really stick and and make people think about these things. Was there anything about that experience that made you maybe for the first time or in a different way relate to Ignatius's life and, and maybe his mm. challenge of coming up with analogies? And how do I get these things to people in a right. way that's that's sticky? Right. So I think that's the yeah, I, I don't think I explicitly said I want to do what Ignatius did. And, and I, 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 I do, all I know is I wanted to help people and to help right. people. You have to communicate in a way that they can receive. Sure. Um, so our, our, the, the way we communicate, but and again, the reason I wrote the Ignatian Adventure was I, I was communicating the spiritual exercises in a way people today could understand. Now, in in my own book, I I, I repeat parts of the of Ignatius's words verbatim and in, translated into English, but I do lots of interpretation and, and extrapolation from them. So I think for me, the using analogy and extrapolation, I think is just what we have to do to make concepts from 500 years ago intelligible and meaningful. So, but, but also there's a larger theological question here, not question, but a assumption is that we're talking about God who is beyond concepts and words. I've often talked about, you know, however you name your God, God is just a three letters on a page, that word God, but it's layered with meaning. Mm -hmm. People have this experience of God, like, like an experience of love. If, if I told you, Kevin, oh, tell me about an experience of love and, and you might fumble for words, which sure. would be good because love is so like, whoa. And then you could start to, you can start to find some words and describe mm -hmm. this or that, or, you know, you look at these, you know, these greeting cards people give to express their love. I said, well, that's good, but it's never enough, sure. right? Poetry, all of, all of Shakespeare's sonnets will never be enough to capture what love is about. So 
I think analogy and illustration example is just a realization that nothing we say, no word or concept or story or image will be enough to capture who God is, who is, you know, a mystery. And what Karl Rahner, a great Jesuit theologian said is God is holy mystery. God is this mystery above and beyond us. Not, not a mystery like a, like a CSI episode where you need to figure it out in 45 minutes. Like, sure. oh, put the pieces together like a puzzle. That's not the mystery that Rahner speaks about. The mystery here is a mystery more like love. It's something real that's sort of calling us to like find out what's happening, but yet you never exhaust the mystery. And it's like love, you keep fall that that notion of falling in love is such a wonderful falling, it's such a wonderful image, falling in love. You just sort of you're a little bit out of control there. But you're falling into hands of love, right? So in the arms of love. So there's something protective about it, but yet they're a little bit out of your control, which is what love is about. So I think, you know, I think I, I stretch for words and analogies in my writing, as we all do, because I'm trying to capture an experience which is about which will in the end be inadequate. I mean, hmm. a, a great theologian said all theology be, ends on its knees, ends in silence, because hmm. you realize. I've said something, but never enough about this mystery of who God is. And my hope in the in what I write and how I might preach or whatever or teach will just help people understand that God is real in their life, that God cares about them, that God is calling us all to something greater, not in sense of doing more, but becoming more of who we're called to be. And that's a, just a very good thing and, a, and an adventure. That's why the word adventure appears in the titles of both of my books. It's sort of... Adventure is great because it's enticing and alluring and a little bit scary, but it's headed in some direction. And and I could cut this. That was a great place. That was a great answer and a great place to end. But it strikes me that as a Jesuit, you would be imitating Ignatius's retreat and in a way, of course, Jesus's. Um, and of course, here I am sort of trying to imitate the same thing. And yet you seem to be in a unique position, position, excuse me, you alluded to Ignatius earlier as being sort of like a, a very productive writer, right? And prolific. And yet you strike me as being sort of in a unique position to maybe relate to that now that you're writing and trying to think mm. about, how, okay, maybe it does end on its knees, but I'm trying to sort of put yeah. it into words and I'm wondering if that has like broadened your idea of maybe who Ignatius was now sort of looking, being able to look at him as a writer and you yourself sort of struggling in that task. Yeah. So, he, you know, he was writing in a different way. I mean, uh, he writes 8,000 letters. I write 80,000 emails. Right. So it's different. And his letters were spiritual, also very practical. I, yeah, I think what I relate to him most of all is that he was trying to help people. Hmm. I mean, that, that, that notion to help souls really, that that drives me right. So the the motto of the Jesuits, as you know, is Amiorum de Gloriam, um, the AMDG, which we find in so many of our schools. Um, you know, for the greater glory of God. But what does that mean? It, 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 the greater glory of God is is this the uh, Saint Irenaeus wrote in the second or third century. The glory of God is the human person fully alive. Right. So anytime mm -hmm. we we give glory to God by becoming who God calls us to be and helping others to do the same. So I think that's where I connect most of all with Ignatius. That's awesome. And a great place to end. Great. Thank Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. I'm happy to just cut the recording. If you want to hang back for a second, so I can thank you offline here. Mm -hmm.